We're continuing in our series, Summer in the Psalms, and we're looking at Psalm 131. If you're looking through a bound book copy of the Bible, it might be easy to pass by it because it's only a few verses long. Uh, But I encourage you to turn there in a Bible if you have a Bible with you or on your phone or any device that you have. Uh, Psalm 131 is where we're going to be looking at. And this is what Psalm 131 says. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Would you join me in prayer as we continue? Father God, thank you for your word and the wisdom that it contains within it. Father, we're grateful for that wisdom being lived out in the life of your son, Jesus, and that we have been called into relationship with him to follow in his footsteps, to live into the wisdom that we encounter in your word. Father, we ask that your spirit would work in our lives this morning and as we listen to this message, that we'd allow you to transform us from the inside out, that you would translate the words that we just heard to the everyday details of our life and show us where you want these words to speak to us today. We ask this by the power of your spirit through your son, Jesus. Amen. Arrogance. We all recognize it. We recognize it from the politician who speaks and acts over and against those in whom they govern. We recognize it in movie plot lines where one character tries to exert themselves over the other. We recognize it in TV, on TV, on the radio, or on social media when people talk down in tones against another. I see it in the life of my kids. I'm bigger than you. I'm stronger than you. That is to their younger sibling. (laughs) We can probably all think of a situation in our life right now where we experience the arrogant mockery of another or the actions of another person who is arrogant, who thinks they can just get away with lording over us. In the 1990s movie, The Mighty Ducks, the Ducks are this fledgling peewee hockey team, and they're just a bunch of misfits. Like, as the movie starts, you wonder, like, how they're ever going to even make it against another team. They can barely stay together as a team. And throughout the movie, the Ducks develop into a functional and surprisingly decent team. However, throughout the movie, the Hawks are a team that seem to stand over and against the Ducks' odds of having any chance of winning a championship. The Hawks even stoop to mean tactics, like trying to injure the star player of the Ducks, to ensure their chances of securing a championship. What we encounter here is that the Ducks had to endure the arrogant ambition of the Hawks. The movie franchise continued for two more movies. However, recently, Disney has resurrected the story and adapted it to a TV show that now streams on Disney+. What is interesting to see is that the writers of the TV show flipped the script from the original Mighty Ducks plotline In the new TV show, the Ducks are now the ambitious, arrogant team. And they become the bullies of this other peewee hockey team called the Don't Bothers, 
who left the ducks because they were tired of the arrogance and the pridefulness. The team that once dealt with the ambitious and arrogance of the Hawks has now allowed that same attitude to seep into their life and the way they function as a team. While the arrogance and ambition of certain characters in our world surrounds us and impacts us, and it happens seemingly all the time, like we seem to never get away from arrogance and the ambition of others, God's word reminds us that none of us are exempt from the temptation to impact others with our arrogance and our overambitiousness. Where we are tempted to act like we are better than others. Where we are tempted to place ourselves over and against others. Where we are tempted to set ourselves up as God. Acting as if we can lord others like God does. Acting like we can make things happen on our own like God does. We're tempted to believe that playing God is how we can secure life. The psalmist's words in Psalm 131 acknowledge the false nature of this belief. The psalmist's words acknowledge that playing God will never provide the life that we're all seeking. Playing God will never make us content. In contrast, the psalmist bears witness that a content life is only possible in receiving it as a gift from God. The psalmist bears witness that a content life is only possible by spending time in the presence of the Lord God. The psalmist bears witness that spending time in the presence of the Lord Lord God is what will transform a person away from playing God in our arrogance and being overly ambitious. If we ever want to get over our arrogance and overambitious attitudes, that's only going to be only going to happen by spending time in the presence of God. And in the process of being stripped of our arrogance and our overambitiousness, it's only then that we're able to op- be open enough to receive the fullness of life that the Lord God wants to gift to us. Psalm 131 presents us the good news of how to become content in life. Psalm 131 presents us the good news that the provision and wisdom of the Lord God is all that we need to be content in life. Psalm 131 is calling us to trust that the provision and wisdom of the Lord God is all that we need to be content. Contentment is a result of being with God to cease being God. Contentment is a result of being with God to cease being God. My boys really like the show Paw Patrol. And I know someone here like, what show is that? It's a kid's show that's, I guess you could say, popular right now. I have watched my fair share of Paw Patrol episodes at this point. But it's one TV show that's for kids that I actually don't mind watching. Like, I get into it. Actually, I think there's a lot of uh, good principles that come out of that show. I'm always like, oh, that basically is like living out a biblical principle, but it's in this kid's show. And I don't know if they even know that they're doing that, but they're doing that. Anyway, I really like Paw Patrol in general. But a Paw Patrol movie has just recently come out. So we knew that we had to take our boys to the Paw Patrol movie. And the storyline of the show and the movie has this antagonist um, who constantly wants to be in control and to take charge and to just dominate over everything. And this character is called Mayor Humdinger. In the movie, Mayor Humdinger becomes mayor of Adventure City because no other candidates run for the position. So Adventure City is now stuck with this candidate or this mayor who just wants to do anything he wants and wants to do nothing to benefit the actual city. One of the things that Mayor Humdinger wants to do once he is elected is he wants to have this big fireworks display, but he quickly finds out that there's rain forecasted for the night he wants to have his fireworks display. 
But he comes to realize that within the city, there's the scientist who has invented a cloud-catching machine. And it's mainly meant to capture clouds to do research on them. And the scientist even tries to warn him, like, it's not made to just, like, capture clouds so they can be nice out. It's made to do research. And he disregards it, gets the controller away from her and starts using it. And it goes up and starts sucking up clouds. Because all Mayor Humdinger is doing is thinking about himself. Eventually, the cloud-catching machine overfills, and it ends up like exploding in the air and causes all kinds of chaos and eventually creates this massive storm over Adventure City, which then threatens the life of the whole city. And Mayor Humdinger's arrogance and overambition that he tried to play God by changing nature. While his acts benefited him in the short term, it did clear up the sky. Um, Mayor Humdinger's known for having cats, not dogs, and his cats are like sunbathing in the sun because it's super nice all the time. So while it benefited them in the short term, it brought chaos to others in the long term. Where Mayor Humdinger deceptively thought he was securing life by changing things and by his arrogance and ambition. But instead, he ended up bringing about destruction, the destruction of life, because he tried to go beyond the bounds of life that God created, that God had gifted to him. Psalm 31 is one of the Psalms of Ascents, which Mike and I have previously covered this summer. Uh, They were intended to be Psalms that were part of uh, those who traveled to and from Jerusalem to go worship at the temple. And you could take that as being Israelites before their captivity or when they're in captivity and trying to go back to worship in Jerusalem. It applies to both scenarios. But these were songs that helped prepare the people to be in God's presence and to receive what he had for them. And what the psalmist reveals in the first part of verse 1 of Psalm 131 is that a prideful heart and haughty eyes, kind of looking down on others, if you will, are what will hinder a person from encountering God's presence. Thinking we know best without any other input or thinking we know what's right just on our own perspective, that really is just narrow at best. What the psalmist is saying is encountering God's presence and having these attitudes aren't something that can coexist. You can either be arrogant and haughty but not experience God's presence or you can experience God's presence but it has to get, you have to get rid of the arrogance and haughtiness. Also, the psalmist reveals in the second part of verse 1 that a person pursuing great matters or things too wonderful for themselves are also what will hinder themselves from experiencing God's presence. The story of Job in the Old Testament is probably a good example of this. If you don't know much about the story of Job, Job entails the rough story of a man who had seemingly everything going for him and then it was ripped out from under him because uh, the devil asked God if he could um, take stuff away from Job because he thought if he could take it away from Job, Job would then curse God. Job's story entails Job uh, continuing to do life even though everything's been stripped of him and his friends come to offer advice on how he should approach the situation. And what they end up telling him is that, well, God is allowing this because you're not living in a right relationship with God. But Job holds on to his innocence all throughout the story. And in the end, Job is actually praised by God for speaking honestly about his situation. He's saying, like, I'm in a miserable situation, like, everything's been ripped out from under me. He's being honest toward God. But Job is in a place where he is able to receive what God has to say to him, whereas his friends did not. And in the end, God does actually chide Job Job for the things that he says. But God also opens Job's eyes to reality. Because Job has been saying, like, 
well, God wouldn't do this, and God wouldn't allow this, and God wouldn't allow this to happen, and, and so on and so forth. Like, he's speaking as if he knows what God would do. But then God starts listing off all these things in creation, like, Job, were you there when I made everything? Were you there when uh, these giant creatures uh, were created? Are you the one that maintains life? Do you know how to maintain the weather system? Like, do you know how to do any of the stuff that I started? Like, you are not God. You have, like, no idea how the world works and functions and maintains itself. You know your life and your life only, and you know your perspective, and that's it. And in the end, Job is like, oh, yeah, I was speaking about things greater than I, as a human being created in God's image, should be worried about. Those greater things are for God, not for me. God has given me a place in life to live out and God has his role that he plays. Job's story is an example of the greater things that the psalmist here is mentioning. Thinking we as humans can do anything if we just have the willpower. Thinking we can manipulate anything to happen if we just manipulate reality enough, like Mayor Humdinger did, does in the Paw Patrol movie. A prideful heart and haughty eyes are what will hinder a person from receiving what God has to give to them. And being overly ambitious will also hinder a person from receiving what God has to give to them. All of these attitudes that the psalmist is talking about can be easily found in Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Where they let themselves become arrogant, believing that they could be like God by eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Where they were overly ambitious to pursue things too lofty for human capability, like trying to be God. Like trying to know good from evil as God knows good from evil. The psalmist confesses that he does not have a prideful heart and haughty eyes. That he realizes God is God and he is not. That he realizes that he is one of many others in this world and not the ruler on top of everyone else. But this reflects that the psalmist has taken time to examine his disposition or his orientation toward God. This attitude that the psalmist reflects in the psalm doesn't just happen magically or out of thin air. It comes about by reflecting on life and the psalmist's position in relation to God. He has taken the time to ask such questions as, as, have my thoughts or words or actions reflected that God is God or that I am God, I am trying to be like God? Like if I look at my words, actions, and thoughts, Do they reflect that God is God or do they reflect that I am trying to be God in relation to other people? But the ability to reflect in such a way implies intentional time set aside to consider one's thoughts, words, and actions. And where does such time occur in our hurried, fast-paced, and on-demand lifestyles? In our... If our lives are constantly filled with our phones, TV, earbuds, or any other activity... Where do we have time to check our orientation toward God and toward others? I've noticed in my own life that I've become very uncomfortable with silence and something not happening. I mean, even just our like ability to watch things on demand. If I listen to the radio and the commercials get there, or if I'm watching TV and the commercials get there, like I've become so attuned to, well, I can just fast forward in five seconds because that's what YouTube allows me to do. Or on my podcast, I can just fast forward through the commercials. Like I get to demand and change and do all that stuff on my own. But when it's like I can't do that, I'm like, I feel like powerless all of a sudden because I've had that power and I've tasted it. 
But I'm uncomfortable with like, well, I don't want to do this right now. Or I don't want this silence right now. Like there's got to be something happening. And maybe you can relate to that as well. We need space in our life where we can stop and reflect on who we are in relation to God and in relation to each other. One way in which we can intentionally make that happen is what we're doing right now. We're all taking time out of our week to be here in this space at this time to reflect on who God is, to rejoice in who God is, to praise who God is. But all that is also a reflection of we are not worth being praised in that way. We are not worth being rejoiced in that way. Only God is. And this is shaping us to have that orientation toward God. But that can't only happen only in and through one hour on a Sunday. It needs to happen the rest of the week, too, to help shape us into that orientation of we are not God, God is God, and we're in proper relationship with Him. Some other ways that that can happen during the week are just simply taking time to to rest and reflect on that relationship that you have with God. But other ways that can happen is by taking time to read or listen to God's Word and hearing who God is and who you're not. Or times of prayer where we take time to allow God to read our hearts or our words or our actions to see where we have tried to usurp that God-likeness that he, only He is supposed to have. You may recall this situation from your childhood. And depending on your age, you may still experience it with your parents from time to time. Or if you have young kids, you are aware of this kind of situation. The situation I'm talking about is that time when a child is past uh, needing fed and cared directly by its mother or by the parents. Our little girl, Wren, is still in the stage. She only eats when she's with mom for the most part. We've started to introduce solid foods, but she mainly gets her food from her mother. And the one day a week that Julia works, Rin quickly finds out that I can't give that to her <laughs> because she's dependent. That's the relationship she has with Julia is that this person provides all the things that I need. But there will come a day when that direct dependence will stop where Rin will be able to feed herself, where she won't just be eating almost every time she is with mom, where she can just be with mom, and that's enough. She can be content. Our older boys are like this now, where whenever they are with their mom or with me on the couch, they mainly just want to be with us. They don't always need something from us. They're not needing us to feed them in that moment. They do do that. But they don't need something directly from us. They just often want to be near us. There's a picture that will come up here in a moment where Pace and I and Julia and uh, Towns and Ren were at a restaurant. And Pace, partly he was cold, but he just wanted to sit by me. He just wanted to be with me. It's not like I was going to really do anything for him. He just wanted to be with me. Because in those moments, they already know that they are provided for and that they are cared for. And like I said, many of us maybe still have these moments with our parents during trying times in our life right now. Where we know we are provided for and cared for and we simply enjoy being with them in those tough moments. This reality is what the psalmist is describing in verse 3 of Psalm 131. The psalmist describes how he has taken the time to calm and quiet himself before God. 
He has taken time to consider that he is ultimately creation and that God is his creator. That all he has in life is a result of God's creativity and goodness and love. And in doing so, the psalmist is in right relationship with God, where he is like a child being cared for by its mother, where all the provision and wisdom that he needs to have an abundant life is found in God alone. But interestingly, the psalmist mentions that this relationship between himself and God is like that of a weaned child. A weaned child is different than a child who needs to be fed constantly. This implies that the psalmist's relationship with God is not one of an infant constantly needing something from God. Rather, it's a relationship with God like a weaned child with its mother. Where the psalmist is aware that he is not God and that God is God. Where the psalmist is aware that God provides for him. And where the psalmist is aware that God cares for him. But what he needs most is just to be with the one who provides and cares for him. Being with God, being in his presence is all that he needs. To be content, he simply needs to be with God. Not God constantly doing something for him, just being with God. This relationship implies maturity on the part of the psalmist. What we see here is that being an infant is not ideal for how to experience life to its fullest. Yet, I think we are tempted to believe that that's where the fullness of life is. If I can just be spoon-fed nonstop, I get to experience the fullness of life. But Scripture is saying that's not the case. The psalmist is here saying that's not the case. Life is actually experienced in maturing. It's experienced to the fullness when you're living a mature life in relationship with God. Infancy is where we need to start, but it's not ideal for experiencing the fullness of life that God has for us. If that was the case, then Jesus could have just remained a baby and never grown, grew up. But he does grow up. And shows us the fullness of what life is in relationship with God. But the reality is, being weaned out of infancy is not an easy ride. Ask any parent. It's messy. When you're trying to wean a baby off of its mother's milk and onto solid food, that food does not all go down its throat. It's all over the floor and everywhere else, usually. It can also be painful. Physically, a child gets teeth and starts to use them in places where they're not supposed to, like biting your arm or all sorts of other things that hurt rather than the food. But they're also like emotionally in stress too, or the parents are emotionally in stress because it's trying, trying to get a infant to live into different freedoms, like learning to feed itself and stuff like that. It's not, being weaned is not an easy or pleasant process. So neither should we expect maturity in our relationship with God to be an easy process either. It will involve some messiness as we adjust to God's way of life. It will involve some hard times as we adjust to life in God's way. But once we are weaned, we reach new, the new dynamic of a relationship with our Heavenly Father. This depth of relationship with Him that we couldn't have in just being an infant. Where our relationship with Him isn't one of constantly needing something from Him, but it's a relationship where we know we have been given all that we need. And now it's simply one of wanting to be with Him. 
and delighting in His goodness and love. Some of you may have been asked by someone in your life, like, why do you go to worship every Sunday? Like, and some of you, even like me sometimes, like, you might be like, why well, didn't necessarily like, get anything out of that hour? Because it's not just about getting something out of it. That's not what a mature relationship with God is about. It's about simply wanting to be in God's presence. And this is an opportunity to get to do that. Do we gain stuff by being here from God? Yes, we do. But ultimately, it's just because we want to be in God's presence with others who are sharing in God's presence. The psalmist describes a relationship with God where he is content, where there's this realization that God is enough, that God is all he needs for life. But none of this is possible if we continue to put ourselves in God's place. None of this is possible if we continue to put ourselves over others because these both both of these attitudes hinder us from encountering God. But ironically, the only way to be transformed out of our pride and out of our overambitiousness is to encounter God and to spend time with him. And as we do so, as we spend time with God, we allow God to point out our arrogance and our life-robbing ambitions. We allow God to strip those layers away so that we can fully be open to receiving his provision and his wisdom of how to live life to its fullest so that we can live into the abundant life that he has for us. And that's only found by being with him and spending time in his presence. Contentment is a result of being with God to receive the good life that he has for us. Contentment is a result of being with God to receive the good life that he has for us. In the last verse of Psalm 131, the psalmist invites those listening to his words to look only to the Lord God for life. The Lord God is the only hope for experiencing the fullness of life. We won't find that on our own. We won't find it by elevating ourselves above others. We won't find it in great and ambitious endeavors. We'll only find it by recognizing our relationship of being needy creatures in relation to a creator who provides everything. We only find that in being in right relationship with God. And on this side of history, we have the benefit of seeing that life lived out to the fullest in the life of Jesus. And Jesus invites us to be united to his life, to give up our pride in overly ambitious ways, to give up trying to be God so that we can experience God and grow best into the fullness of life that he has for us and his family. For God is simply enough for us. Contentment is a result of being with God to receive the good life that he has for us. Contentment is a result of being with God to receive the good life that he has for us. If you've never begun the journey of starting a relationship with God, I invite you to consider being baptized, uniting your life to Jesus and following him into the fullness of life that God has for you. But if you have already been united to the life of Christ in baptism, there are two things that I invite you to step into. One is I invite you to confess that you, like Adam and Eve, try to be God sometimes. We might be unaware of it, but if we take time to reflect, we probably all can think of times where like, "Mm, yeah, I kind of overstepped my bounds there. I was like Adam and Eve in that situation. I invite you to simply confess that we are prone to that attitude. And second, I invite you to accept God's reconciliation back into relationship with him 
by like doing what the psalmist says and encourages those around him by putting your hope in the Lord God both now and forevermore. Putting your hope in that being with him is the only place that we encounter the fullness of life. To look only to the Lord God for the fullness of life. To trust that being with God is all that we need to be content. Contentment is a result of being with God to receive the good life that he has for us. Contentment is a result of being with God to receive the good life that he has for us. Will you join me in prayer as we close? Father God, we all long for contentment, to not be wrestling with life and feeling like we're in constant distress. Father, I ask that your spirit would help us to realize where our arrogance and our overambitiousness hinders us from being able to have access to the life that you want to give to us by being in relationship with you. Father, we ask that you would help us to get rid of those attitudes and that as we spend more and more time with you, you strip those things away from us so that we can experience the fullness of life that you have for us. Father, thank you for gifting us such a wonderful life that you want us to experience. And thank you for being the God who you are. It's by the power of your spirit and through your son, Jesus, that we pray this to you, Father. Amen.